This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hey, Brad. Hey, Erica. It's the Monday after annual conference. It's a holiday week. And so we're taking a week off from Voices this week to share something very exciting. Yes, we have a brand new podcast called The Healthcare Blame Game. And it's a podcast all about stories that you read in the media every day or every week that don't quite get the story right. So what we're here to do is deconstruct the journalism and talk about how the story could have been done better and where they got it right and where they got it wrong. And it's something that we're very excited about and very proud of. Yeah, so the Healthcare Blame Game blog has been around for several months. That's been very, very popular. And this podcast is really an extension of that blog. We're not trying to rehash the blog. What we're trying to do is accentuate it and talk about deeper issues. And in the most recent episode, we go really deep on how journalism works and the mechanics behind how stories are assigned and how corrections are made and those sorts of things. So we hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Healthcare Blame Game from the Healthcare Financial Management Association. I'm Erica Grotto, a senior editor at HFMA. And I'm Brad Dennison, director of content at HFMA. So Brad, it's been a little while since we began the Blame Game project, critiquing stories in the media about the healthcare industry. We've gotten some pretty interesting feedback on what's come out so far. We have, and a lot of it. I've been hearing from sort of all corners of the country, from healthcare people, from other associations, to even media people, uh, reporters and editors who like what we're doing. And hey, we're actually going to be talking to a media person today. But in talking with people in healthcare, we're hearing that just as reporters tend to have misconceptions and knowledge gaps about the business of healthcare, people in healthcare don't always understand how media works behind the scenes. So today we're going to pull back the curtain on that a bit. Yeah, so we have an article to discuss, but the article itself really is a jumping off point to this greater conversation. But let's lay the groundwork a little bit. What is the article we're talking about? Yeah, we're looking at the subject of my last blog, which was a Washington Post article from March with the headline, Americans are knee deep in medical debt, most owe hospitals. The article was based on an Urban Institute report that broke down a survey it did on U.S. adults and medical debt. I didn't have a huge issue with the report's findings, and neither did you, but it didn't bring anything new to the table either. The story itself had problems, including a math error that I raised up with the editors at the Washington Post and uh, did receive a correction. So here's the error, which you can't see there now because it has been corrected. In the original version of the story, the reporter made a statement that, quote, nearly three quarters of those surveyed owed some or all of that debt to hospitals. But this is actually not correct based on the study. While 9,494 people were surveyed, 
only 15.4% of respondents reporting having medical debt. So more accurately, 72.9% of a much smaller number of respondents, 1,462, specifically had past due balances with a hospital. So that's 11.2% of the original respondent base. And the reporters comment that three quarters of respondents had hospital debt was overstated by 61.7 percentage points. The editors did post a correction a few days later, but in my opinion, they should have reconsidered the headline, which is what caught our attention to begin with. There's nothing scientific or mathematical about knee deep. And frankly, I think there's a good chance that headline was based on the error in the reporter's math. So let's talk about errors a little bit. They happen. When I was a reporter, I certainly made a few. And corrections are a pretty common thing in publications like this. But by the time this one got corrected, a lot of people had seen it. So what's your take on that? Yeah, most of the traffic is going to happen on a story in the first 24 hours. My guess is 90% of the traffic that went through that story had already happened by the time that the correction was made three or four days later. I do like that the Washington Post was thoughtful about it. They looked into it. They looked at the report. They figured it out. They posted the correction at the top of the story, referencing a previous version of the story. So that was good. And I think, you know, people should understand that legitimate news organizations have corrections policies. And when they see or alerted to something that was incorrect, they're going to flush that out, see what's right, what's wrong, and write a correction and get it out there. Unfortunately, the nature of that is that not everybody's going to see it who saw the initial story, but they try to do the right thing. So listeners who would like to read your blog, the Washington Post article or the Urban Institute study can find links in the show notes. But you mentioned a few moments ago that we actually have a media person on the podcast today. We have an interview to share in a few minutes. Tell everybody a little bit about our guest. Yeah, I thought it would be interesting to dissect how this kind of reporting happens with a media person. And just for listeners' sake, the Blame Game blog is peer-reviewed by a few folks from my editorial team, which is mostly ex-newspaper people, HFMA policy experts, and I always get an outside view from a general media person. For the Washington Post article, I called on Jean Hodges. She's a former editor at the Chicago Sun-Times News Group and longtime corporate news director at the largest newspaper chain in the country, Gannett. Full disclosure, we worked together in Chicago, and I hired her at Gannett. Jean has always been a reporter's editor. She excels at running investigative reports, and she's never hesitant to tell me I'm wrong about something. So you spent a long time in media, but you've been at HFMA for quite a few years now. So tell me about what Jean is bringing to the table here. Yeah, for me, it was a good reminder from a working media person of the backdrop of journalism right now, which is, you know, it's a very disrupted industry. It's It's been under stress for a long time. It has had to cut its way to a livable bottom line for many, many years now. And so you have just whole tiers of people that are gone from this industry. And, you know, in particular, copy editors are a disappearing breed. And that was the safety net. You know, those were the people that saved reporters from themselves. And, you know, whether it's spelling or style or fact checking, that was the team that saved the day. And now you don't have so many of those resources are stretched, expectations are sort of the same. So you're doing, you know, kind of the same work with a lot less resources than you did.
And I'll say this too. It was also a reminder that when I got to HFMA almost five years ago, I kind of recognized healthcare from working in media. They're both disrupted industries and disruption sort of forces a lot of decisions. And, and in some cases, they're being disrupted by exactly the same players. So one thing that stood out to us at HFMA about this story was that it was not a surprising story. The survey was not all that surprising. And and we sort of had this attitude that it, there, there wasn't a whole lot there. But Jean had a little bit of a different view. I wasn't surprised that the Washington Post chose to cover this study. You know, as an editor, I think I'm looking for reasons to help people understand their world better, right? This is what what media does. And in this case, it may have seemed obvious to you guys what the conclusions would be. And sometimes what we report is obvious, but it's also good to remind people of people who are different from them. A lot of times our readers are, you know, pretty homogenous. And to tell people, hey, there's a study that shows that people are suffering. I mean, that's something that's, to me, worthy of a look, you know. And so I think it wasn't surprising to me that they covered it. And, you know, the study itself, the report itself, I think that if that had come to me as an editor, as a pitch, I would have said, eh, that's worth something. One of the things that you and I have talked about in the past and maybe the case here is there's a lot of talk in recent years about unconscious bias. And lots of times we hear this in the context of race, right? That's been a lot of the conversation over the past few years, but it's a thing. It's a real thing in all aspects of our lives. Talk to me a little bit about how unconscious bias creeps in with reporters, particularly investigative reporters. Well, especially investigative reporters who are really digging deep into a topic can get so enmeshed in it that they do start to think a little differently. And like you said, everyone has unconscious biases and we don't know that we have them because they're unconscious, right? So we train reporters to be aware. And if somebody points something out to you where, hey, you are showing some kind of bias, People, people oftentimes get very defensive in those conversations, but we try to teach people that we need to, as much as possible, shed preconceived notions, right? And I mean, I, I think that one form of unconscious bias is confirmation bias. And that's where you kind of think something's going to be true. And so maybe you don't dig in enough to see if what you're seeing really supports that. So I don't know. I don't know if that was at play here with, you know, the reporter or even the person who made the decision to maybe assign that story. I mean, we don't know if it was assigned or if the person pitched it, but I imagine that what happened is this was, you know, a pitch from the Urban Institute, which, you know, they are the ones who commissioned the study and probably came across in an email and a Washington Post editor or reporter gets, you know, hundreds of these emails a day. And, you know, you you have choices to make with the emails. You can't do everything with all of them. So you just say, hmm, is this worthy of, I would say, you know, maybe three different piles. No, this isn't worthy at all in some of the pitches. Or it's worth something, but as you guys talked about, maybe not everything. I'm not going to give it to my biggest, most busy, you know, investigative reporter, but it could be worth something to just report on the study. One of the things I could imagine happened here, because we know that this dropped in a lot of email boxes at the same time, because the story ran in multiple places. It was syndicated from the Washington Post into a lot of newspapers, but a lot of healthcare media organizations covered the story as well. So there was a media list and this report went out to it. The thing that struck me was that 
everybody ran with the same narrative. The narrative was straight off the executive summary of the Urban Institute report. And the Urban Institute is a fine organization and it was a fine report. I didn't have a huge issue with the report other than their narrative that they built off of it that had little to do with the numbers. Everybody wrote straight off the narrative here. And the narrative is hospitals are are, are not great. They're nonprofits. They should be providing more free care. Why are they nonprofit? Government help us. That's And that's kind of the wash, rinse, repeat storyline that we get. You know, to the institution that covered this, they all covered the same way straight off of that. I mean, does that narrative fit their point of view and they don't question it? You know, obviously, I didn't even see a press release, although we could see the landing page. And I don't know that I took as much issue with that landing page as you did. But I do think that on the landing page, there was something that was confusing. And it was this three quarters number, if I'm remembering it correctly. And I think that got played up in the story. And the headline on the Washington Post story had that knee deep in medical debt, which I think, first of all, makes it sound like people, like if I'm one person and I'm knee deep, I mean, even that it's vague, right? But but also it it sounds like I have a lot of medical debt. And I don't think the study had anything to do with necessarily amounts as much as it had to do with the number of people. You know what I mean? So And also, it just isn't fair to say Americans are knee-deep in medical debt if it turns out it was just a small percentage of people in the survey. Although small percentages, when you like say, ooh, is this representative of the country, can still be a lot of people. I found the headline to be kind of ambiguous and and, uh, salacious and not quite BuzzFeedy kind of a way, but a little (laughs) BuzzFeedy. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I do think that even in... We grew up with newspapers, right, where our headlines had to fit a certain space, you know. Um, Online, you have a lot more flexibility, but you want to be engaging and you can't fit all the statistics in the headline, right? So in a way, as long as it was fair, I think it would have been fine. But I, I hear what you're saying about, like, let's be a little bit more specific in terms of what the problems are. Knee deep is so vague and could mean so many things. And right away, people are seeing medical debt and then hospitals. Hospitals are are at fault. There's one other thing about the study that since we're talking a little bit more deeply about this, is that within the study itself, they showed that there were limitations. And you brought this up in your blog post as well. I thought that was really smart to do because in any study, studies aren't perfect. And the people who run them are smart if they tell the people who are going to be reading the studies what the problems are. And one of the things that they pointed out as a limitation is that this was a self-reported study. So people were saying, I have medical debt in response to questions. And then there were some people, some small percentage of people. And then those people, some of them were saying, yes, and this is the percent maybe of the amount of my debt that belongs to hospitals. But as we know, people don't really understand the medical billing system and they don't really understand hospitals very well. So if you end up in an emergency room, which is one of the most expensive things you can do in terms of your medical care, a lot of the people in the ER aren't employees of the hospital. So you're just, you're not going to just get a hospital bill, right? And you guys know way more about this than I do. So you could explain it better. But I think one of the things that the study points out legitimately is people might have been wrong about how much they owed hospitals. Maybe you can clarify that for people. No, I mean, that's very astute. I mean, even just at a very basic level, you know, medical debt can be a number of things. It could be a health system owned a physician practice, right, or primary care office, but it could also be a private equity owned standalone primary care office. And 
how does a consumer of the health system kind of know which is which here? Because there is a distinction to be made there. I mean, I think it's probably fair to assume that of medical debt, most of it is with a hospital or health system. But as to the accuracy of these numbers, we don't really know. So, Gene, let's go back to how assignments get made to reporters or freelancers. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the distinction between a freelancer and a reporter. I can tell you that one of the criticisms from my editorial staff on this particular story was, however it came to be, it was given to a freelancer who on her bio page says the things that she specifically covers and the things that she specifically doesn't cover and there was one thing under that, and that was business. And there isn't a bigger business in the country than healthcare. And so I think it'd be interesting to think through how that might have happened, how that assignment might have happened. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I feel like this seemed to be a pretty straightforward assignment if you were going to make it as an assignment. And, you know, we talked a little bit about how editors might do that, you know, where a lot of things that come at them and they have a lot coming at them, a lot of pitches. We don't have the bandwidth in media anymore to cover everything. And also, we wouldn't want to do that. At the end of every thought about what we cover is the audience. What can really enrich the audience? How can the audience understand their world better? I think that's just really important to us in media. I think that this freelance reporter, I think they probably have worked with that person before and maybe thought, I don't think it's necessary for her to have expertise in business to do this. It's a study. There's a summary of the study. And they may have given her kind of a word count. It wasn't a very long story. So they may have just said, hey, I want this in, you know, 800 words or something like that. And so I think if they were doing that and she's reliably turned around things quickly for them before in this way, they may have given her a deadline, a word count and said, you know, go for it and felt confident that she'd be able to do it. And then there are all kinds of freelancers that we can turn to as editors, as well as the people on our own staff. And, you know, at the Washington Post, they have a lot of resources, but still fewer resources than they once did. And that's true in media in general. But as an editor, I'd be looking to see how busy are my staffers? And is this something I want to give to my staffers? Or is it something that I can give to you know, a stable of freelancers who I use? And so it could be that this person probably always turns around really clean copy, does it quickly, and they were able to find her and say, hey, can you do this? I don't necessarily object to that. And I also think that Sometimes people are moving quickly or for whatever reason, people make mistakes. Everybody does. Everyone in our business does. And it's just cringeworthy, right? Nobody wants to make a mistake. Certainly not freelancers because their livelihood depends on, you know, giving accurate information. And so, but we know that everybody makes mistakes. And again, as we mentioned before, the Washington Post is a legitimate news organization that corrects their mistakes. Unfortunately, most people have already read the story with a mistake in it, but certainly the record has been corrected with the correction. You mentioned resources, and I think that's kind of worth talking about here. And And you see mistakes and you think, how does that happen? I've talked to other media friends who look at some of these same stories and shake their head and think, well, that never would have gotten through if so-and-so is there. But the news industry has really been under duress for some time. And you look at our old employer, Gannett, they've cut 50% of their staff in the last three or four years. Oh, that's significant. That's thousands of people. You look at the New York Times, just going through layoffs of about 10% as my understanding right now. So a lot of pressure there and a lot of resource going away. And the newsroom is kind of the, one of the first places that you turn because they're not 
air quote revenue generators. So you take the expense out to right size the PNL as best you can. But a whole tier of people have been lost over the years in terms of copy editors. And and you and I have done those sorts of jobs and we've kicked stories back or we've done the legwork behind some of these stories to catch these sorts of, hey, these numbers don't match up. But that safeguard is kind of gone, right? I know a few years ago, um, the New York Times eliminated a huge percentage of their copy editors. And those were the people in the newsroom who kind of knew everything. They were the Google before you could Google search. They were, you know, people who knew things. And then they became... And, hey, explain that. Because we would get phone calls, oh, right? Yes. If, you, if you worked on a night copy desk, sometimes you would, you'd be settling bets from yes. phone calls that came in. Yeah. <laughs> That was so funny. People would call and they would just say, hey, so-and-so thinks that, you know, the World Series in 1939 was won by blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I think it was so-and-so. And And you'd have somebody who knew the answer, you know, and that was the newspaper, um, you know, the editors. And a lot of times those night copy editors, they just had all this knowledge stored in their heads, you know, that's a really good point. Hmm. But yeah, so so there, there are these knowledgeable people who would be reading stories and they were sort of the last stop. I mean, there were other editors who would read a story before that, usually the assigning editor, you know, so I made an assignment to a reporter and then that reporter does the reporting, writes the story, sends it back to me in the first instance. And so I read through it. I see if that's matching up with what I thought it was going to be. And then at some point we're good with it. We send it to the next level, you know, and depending on how large the news organization is, it would get a lot of reads before it would get anywhere. So, you know, when people look back nostalgically and say, oh, back in the day, this never would have gotten through, you know, probably because we had so many more resources, that's true. But even back in the day, people made mistakes, right? So I feel like now we do have Google search at our fingertips. So it's a lot faster to fact check. It's a lot quicker to get that study. And, you know, so I feel like there's advantages now, but we do have fewer people and there's still such a demand for people to produce quickly. And so I think that's unfortunate. And I don't know how far afield we want to go with this, but in terms of the media, there's just a huge transition going on still. People are finding their information in wildly different ways than they did 20 years ago. When, you know, they watched broadcast television, they heard the same stories. And then, you know, they read newspapers and they got information that way. And now people are online. They don't even know what the source of the information is sometimes. They just happen upon something. They think it's interesting. They read it. And um, I don't know. I feel like news literacy is a whole thing that we should teach better in schools and, and really even teach adults, you know, just so that they understand how to question sources themselves. And I think that that's a skill we have and it's something that you brought to bear in this blog post, which kind of in a way helps people who read the blog post even understand a little bit more about how to question what's going on. So Gene, this Washington Post story wasn't exactly one of those stories that takes aim at an individual health system or names names really, but Obviously, a lot of those out there right now, especially since the pandemic wound down, you see a lot of stories taking aim at health systems across the country. And, you know, one of my questions for you is it feels like the narrative is being controlled by the reporters. What could hospitals and health systems do to take more control of that narrative? You know, I think you're right. Like, this isn't exactly that kind of story that the Washington Post did. But let's just take it as an example anyway. It would have been nice to have someone helping a reporter understand the process of medical billing and 
and maybe even what consumers could do differently. I'm the type of person who would pick up the phone and I would call and I would say, and I've done this before, uh, to a hospital and say, hey, I can't pay this all right now and I don't know what to do and I'm stuck. And if I do that, there are people on the other end of the phone who are going to help you. But I just don't think everybody knows that. And it would be a cool story to like, here are things you can do if you're facing this. And if hospitals kind of jumped on that and helped reporters understand that, uh, maybe that would be something that would be really beneficial to readers. I think the editors and reporters would be delighted to help people in that way. And I think the hospitals come out as somebody who has, it's a different level of sympathy. So one of the things about this is collections, right? And that sounds like such a scary thing. Sometimes it's just somebody who, you know, is calling to say, hey, can we help? That's not necessarily always the case, believe me. But maybe you can talk a little bit about that, Brad, about like how that works with hospitals. Well, I mean, I think if I could point in two different directions here and kind of stand neutrally in the middle, I would say on the reporter side of things, I think you're exactly right. That story is not being done. I don't think that reporters are helping anybody. I think if anything, with a lot of these medical debt stories, every single one of these stories is contributing to a mountain of stories that are terrifying people to make decisions about their health care. We see data that people are deferring care because they're afraid of what can happen with payment. There's certainly problems, but there's certainly solutions. I think it's been overblown to the fact that people think that medical billing is a scam, you know, and you see it in the comments of these stories. You see it in the Washington Post story. And the reporters aren't taking steps or even asking the right questions, at least that we can see in these stories of like really drilling a patient and kind of going through their experience and then finding out how they could have done better or been a better advocate for themselves in the system or who you should call if you can't pay a medical bill, those sorts of things. And so there's there's that side of things. And then on the other side of things, I would say that um, hospital people are very close to the vest with media. There is a distrust, I think, between both of them. And I would say to both of them, you're not so different. Some of you went into healthcare, some of you went into journalism, all for the same reasons, because you have a heart for service. You want to help the community. That's what I have found with healthcare people and journalists alike. They have a very similar personality type. And so if you sort of have that look through that lens, like people's hearts are in the right place, but there are problems, you maybe come at the stories a little bit different. And perhaps the hospital people would be more open. I would encourage them to be more open and even more proactive with at least local journalists, like bring them into the tent on things. Hey, if a new price transparency regulation just came out at some point, invite the local healthcare reporter to come to the hospital to sit with the CFO or other key people to talk about the regulation and how it works and what you're doing to meet or exceed those expectations. Surprise billing, anything that you see in the media, right now being reported, you can be a target of. How can you be proactive with that? Or how should you be stopping to reflect on your policies and presentation of how you do things or, you know, looking in your in your uh, in your debt collections process for things that could be improved or more transparent. But uh, I think both sides need to take a look at, at what they're doing and, and how they're doing it. And I think that one of the things that might be missing these days is the relationships and how we can, like, you never want to be too chummy with your sources. That's not what I'm saying. But 
you know, you do want to know them. You want to be able to call them and say, can you walk me through this? And on the other side, you want the communications people at the hospital to be helpful and help a, a reporter really understand what's going on from that hospital point of view. I think that's all missing maybe today, just because people are running so hard and trying so hard to like just get things done. Yeah, I agree with that. And look, I think hospitals also need to look at how their media departments work. I mean, they're very hard to get through. They're built that way. I deal with them as well. You know, and even for me at HFMA, sometimes it can be hard to get to a source. Often I see stories that were reliant on a spokesperson and I'm thinking, oh, man, not the CFO, not the person who has expertise in the subject matter. You know, it's just a recipe for giving to, I, sometimes it's just better to answer the question and put it in your own context, right? Hey, thanks for joining me today. This has been great. No, thank you. This has been really fun and hopefully interesting to the people who are hearing it because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about medical billing. There's also a lot of misconceptions about the media. I think, as you pointed out, Brad, as somebody who's worked both in media and at HFMA, there are a lot of people out there who just really want the best on both sides and you have the experience on both sides. So, so yeah, let's all get along. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jane. Healthcare Blame Game is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association. Brad Dennison is the Director of Content. Erica Grotto is Executive Producer. Additional writing and research are done by Paul Barr and the HFMA Editorial Team, with support from the HFMA Policy Team and Rick Gundling, HFMA Senior Vice President of Professional Practice. Sound Engineering and Editing is by Linda Chandler. HFMA's President and CEO is Ann Jordan. But making things harder on Linda, I'm all right with that.